Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Every day, 100 Americans are killed with guns and hundreds more are shot and injured. And mass shootings are happening more and more. Most of our elected leaders have been slow to create the change we need, but we've seen the power of the people in speaking up about this horrifying crisis. We've seen how our children are creating momentum from marches and rallies to school walkouts. We've also seen how our collective voices can help bring down the NRA and take their money out of politics. Well, on today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Ben Jackson, one of the co-founders of NoRA, which is working to counteract the influence of NRA money in the American political system, a change we desperately need. Hi, I'm Ben Jackson, and I'm going to take down the NRA. Sorry, not sorry. Joining forces less than a month after March for Our Lives events swept through American cities to protest gun violence, Baldwin, Milano, and Schumer have partnered with Parkland, Florida students, activists, and policy experts for the No Rifle Association, also known as Hashtag NoRA, which will fight to reduce the political influence of the National Rifle Association. Can you tell everyone how we met? Because I love this story so much. Yeah, so we met uh, two years ago when my daughter Emma was in the hospital for uh, about six months. And on the 100th day of that hospital stay, I saw a tweet from you looking for videos about the importance of the Affordable Care Act and what that meant to us is when the, the Senate was trying to kill the Affordable Care Act. And I made a quick 30-second video about what it meant to me and how important it was to me and my daughter. And through the magic of the internet, that got to you. And the next thing I knew, it was on Bill Maher and on MSNBC. And I went from this dude who was kind of hiding in a hospital room trying to pretend that the world wasn't ending politically to a guy that people came to for some opinions. And through that, you reached out to me after and, and we became friends and found out that we think a lot alike most of the time. And so we've done we've done a lot together since. And I love this story so much, I think, because mostly it really proves the point that everybody has a platform. And also what it means to be responsible for having a platform yourself and this idea of like handing over the megaphone to people that have more important things to say than I do. And that fight, I think, was the first real battle that we faced with the Trump presidency, the first, obviously, of many battles. And the country, I felt like, really came together in a in a bipartisan way that I don't know would necessarily exist now because of everyone's fear of having their health care taken away. And the other, you know, big issue that is slightly more partisan that you and I do a lot of 
work together, and when I say slightly, I mean like a, a lot more partisan, is the issue of guns. Right. And where we are as a country with the gun issue. So, yeah. so tell me where you think we are right now. And, and do you think that we've made any progress? So I think that we are in, as we are in much of the country, we are in a place where what the majority of Americans want is not particularly relevant to what our government wants. And I think that we've made a lot of progress in changing that. But I think if you look at what all of the data tells us about guns is that most of us want to keep guns away from people who shouldn't have them. Most of us want some restrictions on the types of guns that people can have or how many they can have or things that can be done to keep us safe. Most of us don't want them in schools, but because of the current structure of our government and the way that our our states and our congressional districts have been gerrymandered and because of the influence of the NRA, what the people want and what the government want don't align. And I think that, you know, we... How can that be? Isn't the government strictly in place to help us navigate what people want? Well, you'd think that. I mean, you'd think that there would be some repercussion to elected officials who don't meet the needs of their constituency. But the reality is that's not how our government works. And, and why? That we... Well, because I think that there are, there are huge advantages to incumbency, that getting elected once almost guarantees that you're getting elected twice or three times, that power uh, in the state legislatures to dictate the demographics of individual congressional districts has shifted far away to one side. And I think that politicians are more concerned about broadly, uh, that, that politicians and their campaigns are more concerned about the financial gains that they can make while in and then later out of office than they are about serving the needs of their constituencies. Because at the end of the day, receiving the money for their campaigns, combined with the power of the incumbency, makes it so that they have a job for life. And the accountability is not to the constituents, even though it should be. It's to the election and whoever can get them elected. And where does dark money play into that? And when I say dark money, I would like people to understand that when when people... Well, why don't you explain what dark money means for our listeners? Sure. Well, I think that when we, we talk about dark money, we're talking about money where we don't know the source of it. This is something that we started to see in, in spades following the Citizens United case that allowed super PACs basically to give unlimited amounts of financial support directly or indirectly to campaigns without revealing the sources of their fundraising so that somebody could give uh, a corporation could give hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to these super PACs who can then spend that money politically without accounting for who those people are. And this gives the wealthy, it gives corporations, it gives associations like the NRA huge amounts of power in controlling political messaging, political speech, and ultimately political thought because of that. So having this dark money, having these influences over our electorate that we cannot see and who have no accountability to us, or really even any motivation to tell the truth other than their marketing campaign, completely subverts our ability to have honest elections and honest political conversation in America. 
1871, Union officers concerned by the poor marksmanship they had witnessed in battle formed the NRA to train young men how to shoot better. By 1903, the NRA promoted shooting as a sport at colleges and universities and later created a summer youth camp. Before World War I, the NRA helped arm and train civilians. Before World War II, the NRA offered its ranges to the military for marksmanship courses. During the interwar years, after the repeal of Prohibition, the NRA became active in politics. In 1934, Congress moved to regulate guns for the first time, particularly those used by gangsters like Al Capone. The NRA, through its new Legislative Affairs Division and new magazine, The American Rifleman, spurred a letter-writing campaign to limit proposed gun restrictions. The final bill banned machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. After the assassination of President Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald, who bought his gun through an ad in The American Rifleman, Congress tried to end mail-order gun sales. The bill languished until 1968, after the killings of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. The Gun Control Act of 1968 put new limits on firearm sales, regulating who could buy and sell them. The NRA's leadership expressed ambivalent support for the bill, but in the 1970s, with crime on the rise, a rift developed within the organization between those who wanted to focus on training, hunting, and outdoorsmanship, and members who wanted to take a hard line on Second Amendment rights. The hardliners won. In 1980, the NRA endorsed, for the first time, a presidential candidate, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was nearly killed in an assassination attempt in 1981. His press secretary, James Brady, who was also shot, became permanently disabled. In 1983, Reagan became the first American president to address the NRA. It's a nasty truth, but those who seek to inflict harm are not phased by gun control laws. In the mid-1980s, the organization aggressively courted new members. You can become a part of this great heritage simply by calling now. But despite their growing power, in 1993, Congress passed, over NRA objections, the Brady Act, requiring federal background checks on firearm purchases. The group also opposed the assault weapons ban, which the president signed the following year. In 2000, NRA president and former actor Charleston Heston vowed then-presidential candidate Al Gore could only take his Second Amendment rights from my cold, dead hands. In 2001, in a Fortune magazine survey, lawmakers and congressional staffers considered NRA America's most influential lobbying group. And with President Bush taking power, no new federal challenges to gun rights emerged. In 2004, the assault weapons ban expired and wasn't renewed. In the last decade, the number of guns in America swelled to 300 million, and the NRA counted its membership total at 4 million. I'm so excited to tell you about Zola, the wedding company that is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, the easiest wedding registry, affordable invite suites, and so much more. And you can conveniently manage everything online and in one place, which will save you so much time. There are hundreds of free, beautiful wedding website designs to choose from, all with matching invitation suites. You can add photos, stories of how you two met, accommodation info, and even local recommendations for out-of-towners. Your Zola registry is on your wedding website, so guests get your wedding info and buy gifts in one convenient place, making the process fun, and easy. You can register for honeymoon funds and gift cards along with physical gifts. I wish I had used this when I got married, but you're in luck. 
you can build your free wedding website on Zola and get $50 towards your registry. Just go to Zola.com slash Alyssa and get started today. That's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash Alyssa. Shopping for fine jewelry can be more than a little bit overwhelming. It can be hard to find something that perfectly complements your style, and it could be even harder to know whether you're getting the best value for the price, especially considering the fact that most fine jewelry retailers mark up prices by 500 to 1,000%. No, Emmy believes that luxury jewelry doesn't have to be overpriced. And that's why they cut out the middleman to deliver exceptional products without the exorbitant markup. They design and manufacture everything in-house, and they only sell directly to consumers. So you get the finest quality jewelry and save an average of 50% compared to other luxury brands. They use reclaimed 18-karat gold, a sustainable option with the perfect balance of strength and purity. With a five-star rating and thousands of online reviews, No Emmy is the safest place to buy jewelry online. Every piece comes authenticity guaranteed with IGI certificate detailing color, clarity, and appraisal value. No Emmy also offers a lifetime warranty and free shipping and returns on every product, including engravings and custom designs. You can even get a no-interest monthly payment plan over four months with no hidden costs or extra charges. So if you're looking for the finest quality jewelry from a luxury brand you can trust, look no further. Go to hellonoemmy.com slash sorry to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code sorry. That's an even better deal on top of spending a fraction of what you'd pay for other luxury brands. Just go to H-E-L-L-O-N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash sorry. And don't forget to use promo code sorry for $50 off your first purchase. And can you break down for everybody the influence of NRA money in our political system? Because I think that where you and I have been most successful with no RA is really highlighting exactly why the NRA is a problem. Yeah. And I think that you can look at the 2016 election as a snapshot of that, right? So in 2016, the NRA spent on just a handful of races, $55 million, uh, a handful of federal races, $55 million to influence those elections. 30.3 million of that money went to the Trump campaign, either directly or indirectly through messaging, through commercials, through mailing, through other outside support, and also directly to the candidate. So you have this dual stream of money going to support overwhelmingly one party. And those people use that money to maintain their positions in power. So if you look at Aside from the Trump campaign, there were a number of Senate races. I believe of seven Senate races, the NRA won five of them, the candidate that they supported. And that money then prevents our ability to have even the most basic, no-brainer discussions of, of gun control or gun violence prevention legislation from 
from even happening in our government. So, for example, something that everyone should be able to easily agree on, I think, is that if somebody is arrested for domestic abuse, they, uh, an officer finds something happening, in that moment, the person being arrested says, when I get out, I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to shoot you. And th- that individual is allowed to keep their guns until they receive a permanent domestic violence restraining order. And sometimes that may be weeks or even months after the arrest. And that period between the arrest, where somebody's not going to spend a significant period of time in jail in most instances for a first or second domestic violence arrest pre-trial, there is, that period of time is really, really dangerous for their victim. And we should all be able to say, yeah, that person shouldn't be able to have their gun. The NRA says, oh no, you are taking away the rights of the domestic abusers. It's, it's honestly their line, and they fight legislation that would keep this thing that we can all say, yeah, that person shouldn't have a gun, and it keeps them armed. And, you know, we can look at case after case after case of women who have been killed because of this. And so that's one example. I have another example that I've actually started to use when I'm talking about the NRA and the NRA's power, and that is simply that there were 20 children that were killed in Sandy Hook, and nobody did anything. And the reason why that is, is because behind the scenes, the NRA promised to give money to people, promised to uh, do favors, and their power prevented us from making common sense gun legislation that would make the country safer. And if 20 children dying in a classroom environment is not impetus enough for our government to stand up and say never again, that should tell you how powerful the NRA actually is. Absolutely. And I think we can look also at the Parkland shooting for that, where in the immediate aftermath of that shooting, even President Trump said, yes, we're going to do something about guns. That maybe that was the moment where we had this horrible thing happen to this community and the community for any number of reasons, was able to respond in a way that was immediately accessible around the world and and so powerful to the people who saw that that we thought maybe this was the moment where we say this cost is too high. And the president said, we're going to do something about guns. And just a couple of days later, he had a meeting in the Oval Office with the NRA's chief lobbyist, and then nothing happened. He completely backtracked. And that is the level of influence that this organization has. And I think that regardless of where you stand on the accessibility of guns, where gun violence prevention legislation should be, I think we should all be able to agree that no individual organization should be able to spend, be the the highest spender on a presidential campaign, and then be able to go into the Oval Office and dictate to the President of the United States what policy is going to be. Because that's what we saw happen here. And as of last year, nearly 40,000 people died from guns. And we're not doing anything. It's, it's mind-boggling. How strong do you feel that the NRA's messaging is, in particular about the Second Amendment? There are, there are sort of two answers to that question. One is, how effective is it? And two is, how accurate is it? And those two things are very, very different. What the NRA does very well is sell fear. And fear sells guns. 
so that we can look at what the NRA's messaging is, whether it's looking at people of color, where, you know, at the NRA convention last year, they had a, in their annual meeting, they had a broadcast picture of DeRay McKesson, who was a Black Lives Matter activist, on their enemies' wall, right? That they are they are showing that Black Lives Matter is a dangerous group of criminals and people need their guns to protect themselves, right? And we see this over and over again in the way that they use language. They say things like gun grabbers. They talk about defensive gun use, which is a myth at best in that people who use guns to defend themselves, they never finish that sentence and say, from guns, right? That you don't need to defend your, a gun to defend yourself against a punch, and yet they are reporting that as a defensive gun use. So they use these languages of protection, and then they use the language of freedom, saying that by trying to make common sense adjustments to laws that will save lives and still allow people to keep their guns, uh, and I think you and I both know in our experience in working this arena, there is nobody who is taken seriously in the gun violence prevention community that says, we want to take your guns away. There's, there's nobody that says that. I don't hear anyone that's saying they want to repeal the Second Amendment and take away guns. But that is the language that they use. About well, it. certain guns. There are people that have come out very strong and been very vocal about taking away any sort of military-style automatic weapon. For sure. And do you think that's a, an effective strategy or is it just the right thing to do? Well, I think it's the right thing to do. I think that it will eventually be an effective strategy. It has been previously. But I think this sort of goes back to the messaging's accuracy, right? So we know that the messaging talks about, they use their messaging of fear to say these things. But then there's the reality and the truth of what's behind it, right? So when we talk about something like an assault weapons ban, now these are I was in the military, and I carried an M16 as part of my duty in the military. And this is a weapon that nobody needs, right? It's a, it's a weapon that has a very high degree of accuracy, a very fast rate of fire, is very easy to use, and has a really high muzzle velocity so that when a bullet leaves the end of the barrel of a rifle, it's traveling at a really high speed. And if you look at the type of damage that is does to the human body. It's designed very specifically to do great damage to the human body. It's a small round, so you'll hear people say, oh, it's the same size as a 22 caliber bullet. And technically that's true in the width of it, but the amount of power behind it is a completely different thing. And so they say that we're trying to take their guns, and what we're saying is, no, actually, we don't want a gun that is designed to pierce a U.S. military steel helmet at 500 yards in the hands of anybody in this country because it's not something that is, in fact, protected by the Second Amendment. And I think that we can prove that through history and that we have regulated the weapons that people are allowed to keep and bear. You can't have a hand grenade. You can't have a machine gun. That's there are right. a lot of things that you can't have. And to say that we don't want you to have military hardware is not the same thing as saying we don't want you to have your gun for self-defense if you feel like you need that or you don't need to have you don't want to have your gun for hunting or for the range and while there may be some disagreement as to how whether or not those things are necessary i don't hear anybody seriously trying to get rid of any of that what we are trying to do are get rid of weapons that have no purpose other than to kill humans right like an assault weapon. And, and, now, and an numerous weapon, humans. Numerous humans. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think of the difference between somebody going into a crowd with a pistol versus somebody going into the crowd with a weapon that can fire 
30 rounds in just seconds and can change magazines in just seconds. It's not the same thing. And more people will die. And so they say that we're trying to take their guns, and we're not trying to do that at all. What we are trying to do is save some lives that is not going to actually keep anybody who's supposed to have a gun or be or should be able to have a gun from having them. So there's where the strength of their argument gets to its accuracy, right? And it's just not accurate. They they are not afraid to lie in the course of selling their marketing and selling their philosophy and maintaining their power. Thank you, everybody. Donald Trump's support for guns and for the powerful pro-gun National Rifle Association is no secret. There's no bigger fan of the Second Amendment than me, and there's no bigger fan of the NRA. But today, a surprise. Speaking to U.S. state governors, Trump seemed to suggest a pushback against the NRA. You guys, half of you are so afraid of the NRA. There's nothing to be afraid of. And you know what? If they're not with you, we have to fight them every once in a while. That's okay. Hinting that after that shooting in Florida, Trump wants action on gun laws no matter what. He met with NRA leaders just yesterday. And I said, fellas, we got to do something. It's too long now. We got to do something. But will he? Trump made no mention today of banning guns like the one used in Florida, nor of raising the minimum age for owning them. City with the strongest gun laws in our nation is Chicago. And Chicago is a disaster. It's a total disaster. Just remember, if this man didn't have a gun or a rifle, you'd be talking about a much worse situation in the great state of Texas. Thank you. Chicago, the city, has some pretty serious gun laws. Illinois, the state, tried to pass some serious gun legislation last year that would have done, again, what we think are pretty basic things. They would have required everyone who sells a gun or who works in a gun store to be trained to run background checks, stuff like that. I mean, it's not end-of-the-world stuff. They were prevented from doing so ultimately by a veto from an outgoing governor. That was beholden to the NRA. And But when you look at Chicago, it is situated not far from Indiana, which has very permissive gun laws. It's not far from Ohio, which has pretty permissive gun laws. It's not far from Michigan, which has pretty permissive gun laws. And looking at the guns that come into Chicago, huge numbers of them are were originally purchased in gun stores in surrounding states and surrounding cities. Very few of them were purchased in Chicago. And in fact, many of them trace back to individual stores that have a pattern of selling guns that fall into criminal hands or are used for criminal purposes. And so what we that tells us, A, is that there's something happening in those stores that should be managed, right? That's that the ATF should be handling this as part of their enforcement duties. But beyond that, by not having, you know, Trump wants to build a wall and at the Mexican border where nobody is getting really in, in any great number is getting killed coming across the border. But we are seeing murder coming across state borders that nobody wants to do anything about um, across city or County borders where you have this uh, hodgepodge of regulation and, free interstate travel, the guns flow from where they are easily obtained to the places they are not. So having uniform, strong federal legislation that allows us to prevent this from happening will very clearly save lives. 
Oh, I'm so very excited to tell you about Four Sigmatic because I've started incorporating their drinks into my daily routine and I feel so much better. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier lives. They make a wide variety of blends, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, matcha, superfood blends, and more. Why mushrooms? Well, Four Sigmatic's Mushroom Coffee with Lion's Mane promotes productivity, focus, and creativity. And the best part is that it's coffee without the jitters. Lion's Mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. And to clarify, it tastes just like coffee, not mushrooms. They are offering my listeners 15% off. All you have to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash sorry. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash sorry for 15% off. As you get older, you definitely appreciate learning new things even more. And that's why I love Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and so much more. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Alyssa Milano Sorry Not Sorry listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash sorry. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash sorry to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash sorry. Another thing that, that, you know, we just saw last week, there was a really excellent report on, I believe it was on CNN, about tracing specific guns that were used in crimes in California, that were used in shootings in California, that came from a Midwestern farmer, that he regularly bought discounted guns in bulk, drove them to a gun show in Las Vegas, sold the guns in Las Vegas every year in quantity and went back home. And those guns were bought without background checks, without criminal histories, without questions asked, without paperwork, and then used in crimes in California. And it happened year after year after year, even after this man ultimately was told by the ATF, you can't do this anymore. He continued to do it for years. And to the tune of, I I believe it was about a quarter million dollars that he had sold in untraceable guns at that point, nearly untraceable guns from a criminal justice standpoint anyway, that he did perfectly, or maybe not perfectly legally, but uh, legally enough that he didn't spend time in federal jail when he was ultimately brought down for this, and that he was perfectly legally not running background checks on those sales. And so, again, California has strict gun laws and relatively low gun violence, And the gun violence it has is imported from across state borders, largely. And so having uniform federal legislation to protects all of us. It's sort of like having standard, you know, when you look at at educational standards, right, that everybody's education federally has to meet a certain safety, a certain 
level of quality. We don't have that broadly right now for guns, and it's killing people. You know what people don't talk about enough are the amount of suicides by gun. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. So about two-thirds of gun deaths in America are from suicide. And one of the things that makes me craziest when I talk to people about guns is when people say, when I say there are 40,000 deaths by gun last year, people say, yeah, well, most of those were suicides. Like those deaths don't count. And in fact, what we know about guns and suicide is that they may be the most preventable type of gun violence. That when people use a gun to commit suicide, it is often in a moment of extreme vulnerability and a sort of at a flashpoint where somebody takes an irrevocable action for a situation that is not irrevocable. And it is definitively access to guns as the biggest risk factor for this type of suicide. So we know that when somebody dies by suicide, if they have used a gun, or somebody, I'm sorry, attempts a suicide, if they have used a gun, they are extremely likely to complete that attempt and die by suicide. If they use other means, they are extremely likely to survive that attempt. And when somebody survives a suicide, a suicide attempt, nine out of 10 of them go on to die by something other than suicide, meaning that if they get through that attempt, they go on to live their life as they would. So it is that, mom- that gun in the moment of weakness that allows that irrevocable action to take place for about 22, 23,000 people every year. There's not an, a really great count, but we know it's in that ballpark. So there are really, really simple things that we could do to limit that, that we just won't do. And again, this gets back to the power of the NRA and the gun lobby over our government. Things like red flag laws or extreme prevention orders that allow people who are closest to individuals who are likely to use a gun either for suicide or to hurt other people to go to a judge and obtain an order to have those guns confiscated for a period of time, right? To get them out of the moment of crisis or to allow people to self-report that. Um, It prevents people from being able to purchase guns and it also prevents them from being able to have them. This is almost a perfect way to prevent suicide for people who make impulsive gun purchases specifically for this purpose, right? That we can keep somebody from buying a gun that they would use to kill themselves or people in their houses can make sure that they don't have access to it. That in and of itself would save lives. Another thing that we don't do in this country that we absolutely have to do is allow the CDC to study gun violence as a public health epidemic. Yes, I want to talk about exactly how you feel the NRA worked to stifle gun violence research. Well, I mean, they've done this nonstop. You know, this was, it goes back to the 1990s where they actually demanded this happen in federal law, that, that there is a recurring bill in the government that prevents the CDC or prevents a certain amount of funding to the CDC that would be used for gun violence if they were to go ahead and start examining it as a public health crisis. Yeah, so I want to just make this very clear. So there are federal limits 
on both research, right, into gun violence and the release of data about guns used in crimes. And this is why groups like the NRA have advantage over gun control activists is because we cannot obtain data and research on gun violence because there are federal limits. Right. Uh, I think that part of this is important from the legislative perspective, right? So that we don't, we are prohibited again from enacting legislation that would serve the public by an organization that has no accountability to the public, right? And I think that that is, that is really, really important, and it is a critical twisting of democracy. It's a critical, critical twisting of the way we're supposed to work in this country. Uh, so that's the first part. The second part, which I think is even more important, is that it prevents us from coming up with creative ways to save lives, right? Maybe by studying gun violence as an epidemic at the federal level, we will see patterns that we can interrupt through new types of policing, through non-legislative tactics, through public health management in a way that we have no way to do right now because we don't know everything that's happening. We can tell you that people are dying. We can tell you how many people are dying. We can tell you where they're dying broadly, but we can't tell you what led to that in broad trends. Are there particular types of guns that they use? Are there particular types of ammunition they prefer? Are there connections between mental or physical health and gun violence? Are there connections between other crimes committed and gun violence? And we don't have even uniform national collection of this data, right? There's no federal database that says yeah, and the With legislation complete confidence and accuracy. The legislation didn't explicitly ban gun research, but what they did do is they cut funding and reduced it right. something like some outrageous number of like like 90%. Right. Should that should that legislation or should that research start taking place, right? They basically just gut the CDC if they start doing this legislation, which would you know, in in so many strange and draconian ways, compound the deaths of gun violence into so many other things that the CDC does that saves lives right now, right? Um, It's a really, really perverse way to run a public health service, right? Like this is what, (laughs) this is what they do. They look at what's killing Americans, what is harming Americans, what's making us sick, and they find out why and tell us how to fix it, right? Or they give us the data we need to figure out how to fix it. And to to say anything that's killing this many Americans is off the table for public health research, I mean, it just doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't understand how anybody elected to Congress could say this is okay, right? Could be so beholden to an industry that they're willing to spill the blood of 40,000 Americans every year And in 2018, Congress passed a spending bill that included language that gave the Centers for Disease Control the authority to resume uh, studies, but there's no funding for it. Right. So So, they said, you can do it. You just can't pay anybody to do it. So, you know, it, it was a hollow public relations gesture that had no bearing on what actually happens in America. 
And basically what the NRA told everybody was you can, you can do your research or you can keep your guns, right? But if you, if right. you do this research, all guns would be gone. Right. And that's their continuous line that anybody who wants to enact even the most basic rules, regulations, laws to save lives are gun grabbers who are coming for your guns, right? That's what they say over and over again, gun grabbers. And even that terminology is so catchy, right? Gun grabbers. Yeah. And you know, it's, they use language really well. I mean, they do that part of it. They are really good at propaganda. You know, they understand what motivates the people to whom they appeal to give them money. They understand that really well, and they manipulate it really well. We need to do what's right for kids, not guns. We felt really empowered lying on the ground, actually. Genevieve Deacon from McLean High School in Virginia was one of the teenagers who participated in the lion outside the White House. We came here because we wanted to make a change in gun legislation. The protest not without its heated moments. Kids are dying! Those who survived the shooting are now turning their grief into activism. If all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. Sensible gun laws now! Sensible gun laws now! Sensible gun laws now! Oh, I'm so excited to tell all of you about BarkBox. Established in 2011, BarkBox is the dog crazy, dog obsessed company that celebrates the special connection you share with your dog. That same anticipation and delight that you felt as a kid for every party, birthday, and holidays is the same joy they deliver to you and your dog every time a BarkBox arrives. My dogs go crazy for the all natural treats and innovative toys they send. It's so cute. BarkBox's all-natural treats and chews are made and produced with meat sourced in the USA and Canada, and they never use any soy, corn, or wheat. They also offer free shipping to anywhere in the contiguous United States. BarkBoxes are a $40 value, with plans starting at $22 a month. Celebrate your dog with BarkBox. It's like the joy of a million belly scratches delivered directly to your door. And happiness is 100% guaranteed. If your dog doesn't love something, they'll replace it for free, no questions asked. So, for your free extra toy with BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com. Dot com slash Alyssa when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. You will receive an extra toy for a total of three toys in every box. That's an additional $9 value added to each box for free. Again, that's barkbox.com slash Alyssa for your free toy. So an important part of self-care is making your home feel like home. We spend one-third of our lives in sheets, so they should be comfortable. And when you sleep, you should sleep well on hotel-quality sheets that don't cost hotel prices. And that's why I'm so thrilled to tell you about Brooklinen Sheets, named the winner of the best online bedding category by Good Housekeeping. Brooklinen was founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife who wanted to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. I mean, did you know that most bedding is marked up as much as 300%? 
So they offer luxury sheets, towels, bedding, and more without the luxury markup. My Brooklinen sheets are the most comfortable sheets I've slept on, and their towels, they are so, so soft. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code Alyssa at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all of their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. So the only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code Alyssa. They really are the best sheets ever. We've seen a rise in anti-Semitism recently. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the connection with with the NRA and this rise of anti-Semitism? Sure. Well, I think it part of it comes back to what the NRA does very well, and that is sell fear. Uh, and fear and hatred are pretty closely related, right? That hate speech and fear are and cowardice really are tied up hand in hand. And the NRA has a history of doing two things. One is uh, giving the appearance of being staunchly pro-Israel and staunchly attacking the people that they view as anti-Semitic on the left loudly and repeatedly. If you look at Dana Lash's Twitter feed, she called the leaders of the Women's March antichrists because they did not renounce Louis Farrakhan. And you can make, I think, really good arguments about why the leaders of the Women's March should have made this denunciation and should have been more inclusive to all people who wanted to join them. But if you look at what Lash says and what the NRA says, it is only at people on the left, when in fact they have an awful lot of sort of blatant anti-Semites and other people who engage in identity-based hatred on their board. Ted Nugent clearly is the big one. He has made repeated anti-Semitic statements, both in public, on his Facebook page. He tweeted a picture of Michael Bloomberg calling him the uh, mayor of Jew York City with an image of a number of, of prominent Jewish leaders, all with stars of David over them. He's called Jews who support gun violence prevention Nazis. He's done an awful lot of things like this. He's, he's a clear and blatant anti-Semite, but it doesn't stop there. Another member of their board was a... Um, a person who disseminated the, who worked for and disseminated the ideas of a prominent eugenicist. Uh, other NRA board member, Bob Barr, attended a white supremacist, spoke at the, the convention of a white supremacist gathering in the 1990s. You know, this is not something that is foreign to them. And in fact, the NRA leadership uses really coded language, much like they accused Ilan Omar of using against prominent Jewish leaders. And you see this, they go against Tom Steyer, who is not Jewish, but of Jewish descent. They go against Michael Bloomberg, and they continually point out that these individuals are nefarious money lenders who are subverting the American government, which A, is what the NRA does, so it's a little bit hypocritical, but B, it's highlighted 
specifically at Jewish leaders. And so there's a huge hypocrisy in their messaging if, you know, that they never go after their own. They are really, really happy to attack both Jewish leaders and any others they see as anti-Semitic on the left, um, but they never, ever look at themselves. And this type of hate fuels violence. Again, we saw the Squirrel Hill synagogue attack in Pennsylvania late last year from somebody who believed these anti-Semitic messages. We saw the pipe bombs from somebody who believes these messages sent to a number of people that the NRA specifically spoke about, including those Jewish leaders. There is real world ramifications to this speech and they thrive on it. They thrive on that division. Even just within the candidates that they choose to back from the Republican Party vocally. Yeah, I mean, they give a lot of money to Steve King in Iowa. They are, uh, if you look at, and I will say I have not heard any anti-Semitic statements out of the current governor of Florida, but he was very clearly, he had some horrible racial misstatements. He had not the cleanest past when it came to his racial relations in Florida, but they certainly supported DeSantis's campaign. You look at Trump's own history of anti-Semitic statements, and they supported him to $30 million. And if you look down the alt-right that has sort of taken over the Republican Party and the candidates that it supports, the NRA is there every single time, financially, vocally, with their public affairs machine, with their propaganda machine. They are always there. So what can we do to actually reduce the NRA's influence? Yeah, I think we have to do a few things. One is that we just have to get people out to vote. And I think part of that is that we look at the intersection of all of the issues that inspire people who think differently than the NRA to go out and vote. We look at the intersection between gun violence and domestic violence and women's issues. And we we bring groups together in both of these arenas to talk about these issues because they are not different. We look at people who are motivated by racial hatred and who are motivated by, by fighting racial hatred and who are motivated by gun violence. And we find where that intersection is and we bring our communities together and we link each of these chimneys in sort of activism, in voter motivation, in public thought together and work together towards the same goal. That's part of it. Part of it is we don't eat ourselves, right? Like we on the left are really, really good at letting the perfect kill the good. And when I, when I personally look at the democratic field, I have my personal preferences, but there is not one person in that field who would not be light years better than the president we currently have in office. So I'm not going to attack any single one of those people coming out of the convention. I'm not going to support candidates who do attack those people unless they stray really far out of the bounds of where progressivism is, right? And that's not, do they support Medicare for all in five years or 10 years? That is, do they take money from the NRA? Do they make racially insensitive statements? Do they hold hate in their heart for specific minority populations, right? And then finally, I think we have to think of ways to more effectively change the narrative, right? That there's something in our American mythos that ties freedom and our identities to guns. And I think that we have to break that. We have to, our heroes needn't be martial anymore, that we can have heroes who are 
thoughtful and still exciting. We can end the culture of the gun by changing the way the culture thinks about what it means to be American, right? And part of the way we do that is through art, through writing, through music, through your industry, right? Through movies and through television that step away from gun culture and still provide really high quality, compelling art. We get people talking about heroes that aren't revolving around guns that aren't revolving around violence and that we're able to make that change. And that, you know, finally we elect people who are just willing to act as far as we're willing to go, right? As far as the nation as a whole wants the government to go, which is farther than they've gone now, right? That we make progress in government and that allows us to make progress in culture. So I think we have to do those things before we can really be effective. It's been nearly 15 years since a ban on assault weapons expired. It became law back in 1994, and it prohibited certain models of AR-15 and AK-47 assault-style weapons. One study estimates there are nearly 400 million civilian-owned firearms in this country. That's more than any other country in the world. There is very good evidence from our work and others that denying the purchase, denying access to firearms by people who are prohibited from having that access substantially reduces their risk of violence in the near future. We and others have identified a series of concrete flaws in the way background check policies are written and implemented that I think need to be fixed in order for them to have their maximum effectiveness. Firearm violence is a very complex problem And the correct answer to what's the one thing is there is no one thing. We need to do a bunch of things simultaneously in order to have the effect that we want. When you're putting something on your body, it's so important to know what ingredients are in it. And that's why I like Native. They create safe, simple, and effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. Their deodorant has trusted ingredients, and it's formulated without aluminum, without parabens, and other chemicals. And it still works. Instead, they use ingredients found in nature like coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch, and more. Also, they never test on animals, which is so important to me. So if you want to use deodorant that contains simple ingredients you understand, try Native. It comes in a wide variety of scents for men and women, including coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose, which I love using, and much more. And you are in luck. They are offering my listeners 20% off your first purchase. Just visit nativedeodorant.com and use Sorry during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com and use promo code SORRY during checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Tell everybody about NoRA and uh, where they can go to find more information. Sure. So you and I founded NoRA with a great group of, a great and large group of activists immediately following the Parkland shooting uh, in 2018. And we are a group that is dedicated to ending the grip of the NRA on our government and allowing a government that can function 
freely to keep us safe and work in the public's interest. And we do that through both activism, through lobbying Congress, through participating in the drafting of legislation, but also in that work towards changing the culture. You know, you came up with the term of this for us as a culture hack, and we are actively trying to do that, changing the way we talk about guns through art, through music, through literature, through social media. And on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Noire4USA. That's also who we are on Instagram and on Facebook. And so you can find us each of those places. Twitter is where we were most active, but we exist in all of them. Also on our website, noranow.org. The NRA lies. It's not debatable. It's not something that can be questioned. It's easily proven on just about everything they say. But because of their political power, largely due to the amount of money they spend trying to influence our elections, they get away with it. They force the politicians they buy to tell the same lies, both in public and in their governance. And 40,000 Americans die every year because of it. Imagine being so powerful that elected officials would rather let 40,000 of the people they were elected to serve die every year than work against you. 80,000 every Congress, 160,000 dead every single presidential term, or the entire population of Fort Lauderdale, Florida wiped off the map. All because a single organization has enough money to make their lies into law. Nobody in America should have this kind of power. And one of the ways we undercut it, the way we erode that power, is to tell the truth loudly every single time. Because here's the thing. In the long run, reality does not bend to deceit. When the NRA says the solution to domestic abuse is to arm women, What they really mean is women are someone we could actually make profit off of. We know because an overwhelming amount of data shows us that people are much more likely to have guns in their home used against the people who live there than used to protect them. And no matter how badly the NRA wants you to believe otherwise, that fact is there. It is provable. We just need to keep saying it as loudly and insistently as they do. Now, it won't change much in a single instance, but over time, through the lens of history, it will be the truth, which will win out the truths of Fred Guttenberg and Manny and Patricia Oliver and David Hogg from Parkland, the truths of Sandy Phillips from Aurora, the truths of Rhonda Hart in Santa Fe, and Samaria Rice in Ohio, and Lucy McBath in Congress. The NRA is not strong enough to hold up under the weight of so much truth. The book of Ephesians tell us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. There is power in truth. 
keep telling your truth. I know I will. And this is how we win. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.